Hello and welcome to episode four of When Movies Were Good, uh, the classic movie podcast. Uh, we're down here in Melbourne, Australia, um, having a nice uh, wintry morning here while, while we're recording it. I want to welcome my guest host, Matt, or my guest star. He's the only person. How are you doing well, today, Matt? Well, thank you, Rachel. I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad you finally acknowledge my true status. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, when I pitched this show to Matt, I said that he would be the weekly guest star a la Jonathan Harris in Lost in Space, and he was the weekly guest star every week, even though he was the main main member of the cast. So, so Matt is the Jonathan Harris of um, when movies were good. <laughs> yeah, that's like people who conduct interviews with themselves where it looks like they have more guests in their magazine. Yes. <laughs> Well, welcome to When Movies Were Good. So today we are doing our Billy Wilder double, and there's literally many Billy Wilder doubles that we could do, but we've settled on um, Sunset Boulevard from 1950 and Some Like It Hot from 1959. So as per usual, I'll just introduce a little bit about what links these films together, and then we'll get into discussing them. Uh, so we're doing the Billy Wilder double today. He was uh, very one of the most famous film directors I think America has ever produced. But while I was doing research about him, I didn't actually realise some of the background that he had. So he was actually born Samuel Wilder. Billy was a nickname that he received from his mother, I believe. So when he moved to the US, um, he actually took the name as the name that he would use. He was born in Austria in 1906 and he passed away in 2002. So he's another one of these very long-lived people. He started yeah. off as a screenwriter in Berlin and he left when the Nazis came to power and he actually lost several members of his immediate family in the Holocaust. He went to Paris and then he ended up in Hollywood in 1933 where all good film people would want to go at that point in time. Some of his famous works, um, A Double Indemnity in, from 1944 and The Lost Weekend with one of my favourites, Ray Milland, from 1945. He's won numerous Academy Awards for his work and many of the actors that worked with him won Academy Awards for their work with him. He also was someone who really believed, rather than sort of the Hitchcockian style of visuals on the screen etc he was as he was a screenwriter himself as well as being a very accomplished director he really believed in the strength of writing in a film to help carry it rather than sort of any visual gimmicks although his films you know did look very good for what they were uh, he was considered a conservative director because of this uh, and he you know ultimately had 12 Academy Award nominations for actual screenwriting rather than directing, and he was only beaten by Woody Allen in 1997, who ended up having 13 Academy Award nominations for screenwriting. So, Matt, what's um, your interest in Billy Wilder? Well, Billy Wilder, I didn't realise so much until uh, we began researching that uh, without knowing it, he was actually one of my favourite filmmakers. Like you said, he made Double Indemnity, so he was a hero of mine without my knowing it. And his story is quite typical of a lot of people that uh, came into Hollywood in that period, often from a German or Austrian background. And they brought a very unique way of filming with them because mm -hmm. German cinema had become quite idiosyncratic in the early 20th century, particularly during World War One, when obviously they took up a bit of an isolationist policy and partly from that cultural isolation and also budgetary restrictions in a lot of smaller studios at the time, 
they took a unique approach of many sharp, unusual film camera angles, as well as um, often dark, sinister themes, uh, taking Gothic architecture and using their visual principles in terms of um, uh, often Catholic-influenced surrealist perspectives on space and psychology. And so even though Billy Wilder, like you said, was more about the screen uh, writing process uh, than the visual compared to Hitchcock, he, Mm -hmm. in fact, uh, even if um, he said he was more of a literature literature person, he still had that strong um, visual influence, which you can see in his films. It's not so much that he's a playwright, which you can see with a lot of um, films from up until the early 50s, uh, such as 12 Angry Men and others where there are, um, where it's much more theatrical in its sense, he still integrated himself well into the cinema format. Mm -hmm. And he, Billy Wilder, played such a part in uh, contributing to the what's called the film noir genre, which Mm -hmm. is, um, it's a hard... um, uh, genre to explain because they didn't never had clear manifestos or um, a detailed line of principles and so that's partially why when you go to fan forums on the genre it can get quite intense on debates of what film goes into what category but right. uh, the so that's the stereotypical hard-boiled detective mystery mm. uh, so the likes of Bogart uh, um, chasing down Bacall and other planets. So, like the the Maltese crime. Falcon and all that stuff. So, I I haven't actually yeah. ever seen Double Indemnity, but I have um, heard it's definitely if you're wanting to research a bit of film noir, it's definitely one of the ones to start with. Yes, it's definitely um, what I take to a desert island with me, along with Sunset <laughs> Boulevard. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're excellent pieces. What's unusual about Sunset Boulevard? is that even though it is one of the uh, canon of film noir, it's off, it's quite variant in some of its themes uh, compared to a lot of typical film noirs that are more chasing down a murder suspect uh, in, a, in a detective setting. Sunset Boulevard uh, is about, um, even though it starts uh, with a killing, so William Holden, sorry, spoiler, is is uh, found swimming in a pool, it begins with in a much more lit-up situation where we're seeing this dark progress towards um, uh, murder and uh, the desperation of identity and the shadows and the um, that crucible, that uh, stuck environment uh, right. where bad <laughs> things happen. Okay, so um, you've segued quite nicely into our first film, so we'll just tell the audience a little bit about it. So the first film that we will just go into a little bit more, although Matt's made a great start there, is Billy Wilder's 1950 Sunset Boulevard, and this was a Paramount film. So Billy Wilder directed this film. It starred Gloria Swanson and William Holden, as Matt mentioned, and Eric von Stronheim and Nancy Olsen. Uh, and also many famous cameos by people like Buster Keaton and C.B. DeMille. Now, Billy Wilder wrote this script with uh, Charles Brackett and D.M. Marshman, the music by the great Franz Waxman and the cinematography by John F. Seitz. 
the plot, so the basic plot, as we had discussed a little bit, uh, so Norma Desmond, so Gloria Swanson's character, is an ageing and reclusive silent film star. And she draws a struggling writer, Joe Gillis, played by William Holden, into her fantasy world, believing he can help her with a triumphant uh, return to pictures, particularly talking pictures, because she was a famous silent film star. So... Um, so this is one of your favourites, Matt. I just take it from what you were saying. It's a film I remember watching as I did watch it just 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 this week, but it's a film I remember watching a lot as a kid. It always seemed to be on on Saturday nights. <laughs> yeah, I think nowadays that um, time slot's been filled up by the sound of music. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so when a uh, uh, when some scandal occurs and they have to cancel an event for some reason, they'll put the sound of music on yeah. instead. But you're right, yeah, Sunset Boulevard is uh, one of my all-time favourites. It's uh, so beautifully dark. I love discussing old Hollywood and the uh, antics that had to go on. And for Norma Desmond's actress, um, uh, it would have been a very hitting home because she was a silent film star and... Obviously, like many, when um, movies went to sound, it uh, spelled a slow death to their career. Although it's interesting, she was actually in a group of actors interviewed for radio at the time that mm-hmm. uh, believed they would still be carrying on through. And as we can see, it's not that she uh, was like the screaming, um, high-pitched singer and singing in the rain who um, couldn't um, act or sing or anything. She was a co- right. an accomplished um mainstream actress yes Uh, it was just a bit of bad luck but also uh what would have hit home for her was that that silent movie they show projecting in her living room uh was actually one of her last major silent pictures um that she made together with um uh her her butler and which unfortunately did cause a bit of a problem for her career because it was um quite a massive flop at the time Yes, I was reading that, that that film that they, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. I suppose, you know, the story of Sunset Boulevard is not kind of unique to the motion picture business. I think any great industry, which is, you know, changed and a group of people that were once doing well now find themselves on the outer. I think you could probably equate that to many different industries all over the world. So it's just someone sort of holding on to something that's not there anymore, especially that big opulent property that was really quite run down and stuff that's yeah. unfortunately not there anymore. But It also um, ties in, I think, with the issue of ageing in Hollywood as well. It's a similar to the film All About Eve. Yes, that's true. And it was actually, I didn't, I, I couldn't remember when I was watching the film that I could remember seeing her getting all those facial treatments done and things in the film. I was like, oh, I didn't even, I didn't even remember that that happened when she was sort of training to go, to go back onto the set. Um, I did find it interesting. Left her, but, but no, you didn't. Yeah, that's right. And she, and Gloria Swanson herself was one of sort of the pioneers of people being on those macrobiotic diets and things like that. And she was actually quite long lived. Uh, herself um, she was often she sort of had specialty chefs and things that used to work with her I did find it interesting that again one of our favorite people uh, Montgomery Clift was actually the original choice for this role uh, yeah. and then due to sort of circumstances in his own personal life I think he was quote unquote dating an older woman at the time and he didn't want 
that to sort of spill over into the fantasy world of being in this film or or something or other. And then Mae West apparently was considering, <laughs> I, can't, I can't really imagine Mae West doing this role, but I read that, but I think that was quickly nixed very, very straight away. And then they obviously, when Gloria Swanson said that she was interested, what was your, um, I guess for me, the only problem I had in this film is I didn't feel that, Eric von Stronheim's character, I'm not, wasn't really into the writing for him. So he was a director. He was her first husband. I didn't really yeah. buy that he would be, that he would just be around the house with Madame and all this sort of stuff. I, I, I think if I was sort of, you know, one of the people helping to write the script, I would have made it that they had come to Hollywood together. They'd both been struggling. He was a struggling director. She'd managed to get the fame and he was madly in love with her. And rather than go on with his own career, he just stayed with her. I don't necessarily know that I buy the whole, you know, bought the whole thing that he was her husband and just stayed with her for that. Yeah. What do you think about, what do you think about the yeah. story? I mean, it's obvious that Norma Desmond um, is struggling to an extent with her mental health and the loss of her identity. But I find it hard to believe that she'd have suddenly forgotten that von Stronheim is um, who the, is both the director that brought her into the business uh, yeah. and also um, uh, was her major screen partner and husband that she suddenly forgets all that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I mean, it was an interesting, it, I get that they did it to sort of have that twist in it, you know, when he's in the garage and he tells, you know, William Holden's character, I was her first husband. But I think it, it would have just been dramatically, you know, relevant if he just said, you know, I gave up everything for her and we came here together and I supported her and this is essentially what I got to be her butler for the rest of my life. I think that would have worked just as well. Um, it was, I mean, the film is high camp, but it's done, it's done in such an effective way. Uh, you really, it reminds uh, me a lot of Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca, that yes. creepy um, head servant. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it was, and as you were saying, you know, about the look of the film, they really did, um, even though it was in black and white, you really could tell like at the start of the film when he was in his apartment, how sunny and open that was. And then the sort of gothic confines of this mansion, which I believe wasn't yeah. that um, one of the Getty family had that mansion and they used it. I think I was reading that and they actually had to put the pool into the house to shoot that scene. I can't remember. I do remember a notable family did have um, uh, that aspect. Uh, funny you should mention about the outside of LA at the beginning because anybody who's visited visited there would understand this, that it's uh, this very spread out city where you have to drive everywhere. There's very little accommodation for pedestrians, even at that yes. time. Yeah. And I think it's very funny that um, he's hiding at his car from creditors and he's parked it at uh, somebody's shoe shine, shine store in its own parking, because that says <laughs> something about a Los Angeles, because I cannot think of a more pedestrian walking dependent job, a shine store, and yet it has its own car park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's just, you know, it's a really interesting film. It's very dramatic. And I actually really liked William Holden in this film. I loved his narration. I think he, he actually sort of was a bit of the uns. Obviously, Gloria gets, you know, the share of the credit for this film. But I actually think Billy did a really good job with 
William Holden and the whole look of the film. And look, I did, I really, other than that small quibble about, you know, the von Stronheim character, which is really just a personal preference. It's not wrong or anything. Um, overall, I think the film's, you know, very entertaining. It's very sort of schlocky, but in a, in a, in a good way. Um, what do you think? Yeah. Although I, I think it's, uh, flows so well. You could, um, it's one of those films that you could break down scene by scene and you see that strong visual planning in all of them. It just works so well. Uh, one thing that I'm glad that they um, tested out on a studio audience beforehand and ended up changing in the movie, though, was at the beginning. Like you mentioned, William Holden, he's doing his voiceover where his body's floating in the water. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of story. Originally... Uh, and you probably uh, have read about this too, they actually had him as a dead body mm-hmm. in a morgue with other bodies, and he was actually having a conversation with the bodies. <laughs> and uh, this, they cut this out very quickly and replaced it with a pool scene because the studio audience was just laughing their heads off. Yeah. Uh, oh, I think if they ever remade the film, that could be an interesting thing to try, But um, and no, no doubt I, they probably will remake it. I think that... That part, if they had done that part, it wouldn't have aged nearly as well as the rest of the movie. No, that's right. Because All right. They, well, yeah. Yeah. They liked, yeah. They liked having, at the time, bodies that talked independently. <laughs> Less All right. Well, well, let's jump over to Nine Years Later and Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot which was a United Artists film from 1959. This is one of my favourite films. It's been one of my favourite films since I was a kid. Of course, I directed... up when you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Matt came to a viewing at my my little flat um, not that long ago with my mum because she's the one that got me into this film because she's a big, um, not only Liz Taylor fan, but a big Marilyn Monroe fan as well. Um, now, directed, obviously, by Billy Wilder, starring Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and the wonderful Joe E. Brown, who I think is hilarious. Now, this film was written by Billy Wilder as well. Is there nothing he can't do? And his longtime collaborator, now let me make sure I read this out properly, I.A.L. Diamond. Uh, I think that was his, um, you know, name that he used in Hollywood. And it was actually based on a film called Fanfare of Love, which was a 1935 French film, but I wasn't able to research too much about the plot of that film, or I'm guessing it's a similar sort of thing where the men are dressing up as women. Um, so the music was by Adolphe Deutsch, so he had to have that very jazz sort of inspired um, musical collaboration on the film, and the cinematographer was Charles Lang. So let's just recount for the audience just really briefly the, the well-known plot of Some Like It Hot. So Joe and Jerry, so Curtis and Lemon, are two strug- struggling Chicago musicians. They witness a gangster hit trying to get to a gig. With the gangsters out in full force, the boys take jobs as musicians travelling to Florida. The only catch is it's an all-female band. Um, I can't say enough about this film. I just think it's utterly hilarious. I just think Jack Lemmon in this film, actually apparently um, Jerry Lewis and Danny Kaye were being considered for the for Jack Lemmon's role and then Billy yeah. Wilder saw him in a, in a movie um, and Frank Sinatra was actually considered, I think, briefly for Tony Curtis's role. But I just, oh, this film... I can't imagine Sinatra doing anything <laughs> like this. No, neither can I. I mean, I'm sure he would have given it a good go. But this film, to me, is just all the punchlines, all the setups. 
it gave birth to my catch cry that I say about 20 times a day. Anyone that knows me, I constantly say, I'll say, uh, um, taken from Jack Lemmon's character when he sees Marilyn Monroe adjusting her dress. He says it a few other times in the movie. But I work with a lot of younger people. They don't even know this film. They know nothing about it. And yet they all say, I'll say to me constantly. Um, I think a lot of um, comedies, particularly in the UK in the 60s and 70s, would have these stuffy characters that would use those phrases like, I'll say, and uh, gross indignation. Do you know what's something I just realised, though, as you described the plot just now? Yes. Sister Act is basically, with Whoopi Goldberg, is basically the exact same movie. Yeah. <laughs> Except the cross-dressing is in a convent. Yes. I mean, it's it's a very sort of um, good formula. And actually, um, Tom Hanks kind of got his start in Hollywood. He'd been done a few things before, but he had a partner sitcom in the early 80s before he did sort of Splash and all these other films that he did called Bosom Buddies, where essentially him and his friend had to dress up as women to live in this apartment block that they had to live in for some reason. But they spent most of the show cross-dressing and none of the other women in the apartment block knew that they were men. So I'm sure they probably got the idea from them. But I just think everyone in this film... Just, I know there were problems with Marilyn Monroe. I know she was notoriously difficult to work with, but what Billy got onto the screen with her was great. I mean, you know, unless you were reading about the film behind the scenes, you wouldn't have known that she was always late to the set, that she had trouble remembering her lines, that, you know, that famous last scene, you know, the no, nobody's perfect uh, scene, she wasn't even there that day, was she? she? I don't think she turned up to the set. So Tony Curtis had to sort of pretend he was kissing her and she wasn't actually even there. I, I don't know uh, about that one, but it's uh, not surprising. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she, um, uh, well, we, we know she had problems. Uh, that's the only way to say it. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, yeah, un unfortunately, uh, Hollywood is a place where quite often there's um, uh, behavior to an extent, I wouldn't necessarily say tolerated, but if you're big enough, then you'd get away with being a little less prompt than your average chartered accountant. Yeah, I think um, her husband at the time was at Arthur Miller. I think he showed up to the set quite a bit. And I know she'd lost a baby and she had a lot of things going on, but at least it didn't spoil what they could actually get onto the film because the parts that she was in when she was, you know, on point, she was actually quite good. Obviously it took many takes to get her there, but I just think um, I actually, here we go, Matt, I haven't told you this story. I don't mean to name drop, but I met Tony Curtis back in the early nineties when he was on a TV show with um, Ray Martin, who's an Australian talk show host. And it was a very surreal experience. And he was talking all about, um, some like it hot and just describing the costuming, the way they had to try and move their bodies. The reason they ended up shooting it in black and white was because the makeup just looked so bad on the two of them that black yeah. and white was the only way to sort of uh, carry it off. And then, well, frankly, they weren't that convincing in black and white anyway. <laughs> uh, those are, yeah, those are girl musicians must have been really under the under the influence uh, to accept them, even if it was a dry trip. Yeah. <laughs> But the whole, I mean, the film is just 
really fun. I mean, it probably could have been a little shorter than what it was. Like some of the parts at the end with the gangsters coming in and stuff, I think they could have condensed that down a little bit. But really, I mean, it's just quibbling over nothing, nothing, you know, nothing in particular. But, um, yeah, apparently the original choice he was going to go for was Mitzi Gaynor for Sugar. He didn't think someone like Marilyn Monroe would do the part. And then when she she said yes, then he pretty much just got rid of everyone else and put her in. I don't know if he lived to regret it, but he said he don't think he could ever work with her again, uh, oh. Billy, because she's just too frustrating to work with. And it's a shame because, you know, when she when she was there, she was a real presence on the film, hence the reason she was so sort of popular. Um, but this is this is one of my favourite films. I just think I just love all the jokes. I love all the corniness. I just really think Jack Lemmon being in that role of Jerry was, you know, he was the right person for that role. And I actually see him more as the central point to the film because he's really good with Curtis and with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, it's um, and I like how um, even though for most of the people who were watching the film at the time, they would have had um, in living memory the actual time of uh, bootlegging and prohibition. Yeah. And they would have known about the violent gang violence that were occurring, but they how they were so, in that time, able to make such a uh, effective screwball comedy out of it uh, with, um, uh, with all the slapstick of the ticking machine guns out of a alcoholic <laughs> purse and stuff. It's... Um, uh, like you said, like you said, they uh, probably um, uh, made the film script drag out a little, and that's because of uh, gaps that were meant to be filled by Monroe actually set up uh, going to the set now and then. I don't know, but I, I think it really works. The um, I was watching this old interview with um, well, not really an interview. It was a talk show with Jay Leno and Seinfeld, and they were discussing how so often comedy lasts far better than any other genre. We love Charlie Chaplin uh, mm-hmm. uh, getting into his antics much more than Rudolph Valentino doing yes. a strange, um, uh, how shall I put it, <laughs> oriental seduction. So yes. uh, this comedy has stayed uh, really fresh. Yeah, it, it really has. And, I mean, they're, they're all so iconic. And every, I mean, Joe E. Brown, who played um, – Oz good fielding. The minute this guy comes on the screen, it's just he had one of the best lines of all time. Nobody's perfect right at the end of that film. Apparently they were trying to write another line for him to say and they sort of shot it and they're like, oh, you know, but they never ever came back with a better line than that. There's really no <laughs> there's no better line to finish a film. And he was just great. And actually everyone in the cast, all the girls, the managers of the band, I think Billy Wilder really got together. And the fact that he co-wrote the script as well, I mean, it was so funny. I mean, there was just gag after gag after gag, a slapstick, as you said. And I love physical comedy and I love actors who will do physical comedy. You don't see as much of that now, unfortunately. Yeah, um, it's hard so... to believe it came from the same man that gave us Double Indemnity, which is one of the darkest film noirs ever. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that's why Billy Wilder, was such a talent because he really straddled many different genres and he, even these two films, how different they are. It's hard, you know, I was reading through, I definitely want to watch more of his films. It's like, wow, he directed that. Wow, he directed that. It's like, oh, okay. I just didn't didn't know that he did. But the great thing about this journey we're on with this podcast is we'll get to watch a lot of these films and do our own research on different things, which is, which is fantastic. So, um, yeah, thanks for that, Matt. So just to wrap up today, 
really appreciate the audience being with us. Sorry, we're, we're trying our best in this uh, sort of COVID environment and I'm really proud of ourselves and especially Matt for all of his great input getting the podcast started. Um, and just to let the audience know, our next set of films, our next double uh, is we're going to be doing priests and religion in films as a theme. Uh, so our next two films that we'll be doing um, are Keys of the Kingdom, 1944, with Gregory Peck. So one of uh, either his first or second film, Matt, will we say? Uh, that was the movie that introduced um, uh, Gregory Peck to the world. Right. Okay. So um, I'm actually, uh, I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to find that film, but I have found it somewhere. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And then one of our favourite people again, two of our favourite people will be going for, I confess, 1953, Alfred Hitchcock and the great Montgomery Clift again. And yep. actually, and Baxter, <laughs> we're not going to turn this into the Montgomery Cliff show, but um, yeah, so we've got um, Keys of You'd the Kingdom. You'd like it too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my mom would like it too. She loves Montgomery Clift, um, Keys of the Kingdom and I Confess. So we're really looking forward to that one. I know it's a, a subject matter that's sort of near to Matt's interest and his field of interest in certain things and historical things that he's interested in. Um, yeah, is there anything you want to say before we sign off today, Matt? Oh, just uh, as usual, if you like the video, please uh, subscribe to our channel, uh, hit the like button, leave us a nice comment. We love those and tap the bell on the YouTube channel so you can be notified of further content. Also, we have our channels on Vimeo as well as Twitter and Instagram. So plenty of ways for you uh, to have us communicate to you about when movies were good. Yeah, definitely. And if there's any anything you want us to sort of any film doubles you think would be interesting or any information you can pass on to us about anything that we're always interested in, in learning more. I mean, there's literally so many resources to go through. But just for this week, just to wrap it on up, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thanks, guys, and take care. Good night. Good night.